linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And along with me, uh, at least in spirit, are some other co-hosts in that uh, they are fellow saloners who sent in donations recently. So uh, let's all thank Dambala Weto Productions. That's uh, D-A-M-B-A-L-L-A-H-W-E-D-D-O. So I hope I pronounced that close to right. Uh, Stephen D., Howard U., Brown Rabbit Creations, and longtime saloner Mark C. for their generosity in these uh, difficult days. And uh, thanks to our donors, these podcasts will continue winging their way to you for a long time to come, uh, because a lot of new archival recordings are coming my way every month now, and so uh, I'm going to make it my mission to see that I get them all out eventually. So, uh, without any further ado, let's uh, get back to the 1992 Terrence McKenna workshop. Uh, since we played the first uh, uh, two parts already, as you already know, uh, while Terrence titled this workshop Hermeticism and Alchemy, uh, it has actually been an eclectic bag of interesting stories and information, I think. And uh, he doesn't disappoint today because uh, we're about to hear another wide-ranging discussion that uh, took its direction from the questions asked by the audience. And uh, among other answers uh, he gives in answers to the questions he's asked, uh, one of them was, what holds our concept of a community together? And uh, I'd never heard him ask that before, and uh, his answer, of course, was typical Terrence. He said, what holds us together is what holds all subcultures together which is an experience. In this case, the experience of being loaded. And, you know, it's a very powerful and immediate kind of experience. (laughs) And, uh, yes, there are a few more skips or cutouts or whatever they're called in the recording, but, uh, again, I don't think they will seriously slow you down. So uh, let's uh, travel back in time now to the year 1992, the depths of the Reagan-Bush debacle and uh, join the one and only Terrence McKenna once again. Okay. Uh, well, there seemed to be a lot of hands up when we left. Can anybody pick up the thread? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard you know, you've heard many times the self-transforming machine type and stuff. And what... What I, I, know, I, I recognize you very much insist that, that the DMC realm is a very alien realm, very unlike something like the aliens, archetypes, etc., etc. But when I hear your descriptions of these entities, which I have not encountered, though I tried, was uh, I hear a fairly uh, 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 an image of an elemental spirit, which we would call it in Western sort of folk mythology. In the sense that one, just because you use the word elf, though I know they don't really look like necessarily like classical elves, but the sense of a small entity doing a lot of work that is neither good nor bad, in the sense it's sort of mischievous, it's, it's not demonic, but it's not, you know, an angel. And the sort of sense of them being small and doing a lot of work comes to me very much as a sort of impression of an elemental. And one, if you could just respond to that, and also, to me, and I just think of your own particular racial heritage and the fact that the main elemental spirits that one thinks of are often these Celtic 
little fairy view, and whether how you sort of, what, you know, I'm sure you thought of this to some degree, but how you sort of integrate these, these things. Well, uh, <clears throat> some of you may know this book. It's a classic called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries by Evans Vance. And it was reprinted recently, and I wrote the introduction to it. It's an int- it's, it mentions in there, uh, when, Saint, when Patrick arrived as a missionary in Ireland to convert the pagan Irish, the problem that he encountered was this belief in the land of fairies. And he, in order to convert the pagan Irish, he uh, convinced them uh, that, uh, uh, that these were souls of the dead in an intermediate zone that was neither heaven nor hell, which he called purgatory. Purgatory was invented to accommodate the folk beliefs of the pagan Irish. And when it was brought back to Rome, uh, it seemed like such a good idea for converting all kinds of pagan peoples on the fringe of the expanding sphere of Christianity that it's been in place ever since. I've wondered, I think I even talked sometime this week to somebody about... um, about the way in which there seem to be there's a kind of a racial or a genetic undertone about some of this stuff. The I never really felt I I didn't know till I was 13 years old that I wasn't a white person because I grew up in Colorado where everything was white bread culture. And my father may have had opinions about the IRA and all that, but we were never told, you know, that we were Irish. And, you know, some of you who have roots in this city city know that as recently as uh, 50 years ago, they used to have signs up along 8th Avenue that said, no dogs or Irish allowed. So, uh, you know, I, I... reconnected to that part of the heritage. The Irish are uh, stereotypically known to be susceptible to intoxication, to be great word spinners, um, and to have this peculiar relationship to fairyland or something. Uh, I would. I don't want to think that I'm just exploring the Celtic collective unconscious. It seems to me these things must be there for everybody. Nevertheless, you know, we're so concerned to suppress racial differences because we're a democracy and because racial problems have haunted American politics from the very beginning that we tend to want to believe that everybody is different. I mean, everybody is the same. But in fact... um, you know, I took a course once at Cal, which w- it was interesting. It was given by the forensics department, the only course I ever took in the forensics department. And it was called Biochemical Markers for Individuality. And one of the things we did, it was actually taught by Alexander Shulgin, the great drug designer. And one of the things we did is he brought in a little vial of some kind of chemical and he passed it around. And out of 
of 200 people in the class, 198 couldn't smell it at all, and two people were so overwhelmed by the smell of this that they actually became physically sick for a few minutes. Well, what this is, and then he explained to us, these people were probably up to 50,000 times more sensitive to this chemical than uh, most people, and that this is a gene that you carry for sensitivity to this thing. Well, those kinds of compounds, um, aromatic compounds, compounds with an electronically active ring structure, are the very nearest relatives to drugs. And, uh, and so it's reasonable to suppose that there are genetic differences in the way we relate to drugs, which doesn't mean racial differences. It means from person to person. But it also may mean, you know, that uh, what a race is, is a, a collection of related genes that are more uh, frequently found together than not. You know, this is why, technically speaking, you can never say so-and-so belongs to a race because a race is a quality of a group. It's not something an individual is. You have to have a bunch of people before you can say that you're confronting a phenomenon of race. So it may be that what Aboriginal people believe is that there are shamanic lines, family lines with a greater susceptibility to these things than others. So one of the things you learn when you begin to explore psychedelic substances is that it isn't hitting everybody the same way. In fact, it can hit people radically different ways. Um, society misrepresents drugs tremendously. For example, you know we all know the stereotyped image of uh, the pothead. You know the pothead can't work can't remember. It's the inarticulate, dumb, hippie image. Well, I've never met anyone with a deeper devotion to cannabis than myself. And, you know, I'm very proud of my memory and my ability to get verbally organized under almost any condition. So I completely violate the stereotype of what it is to be a pothead. Well, how many people are there like that? I mean, I'm always amazed when people say, you know, no, I, I don't want to smoke any pot. It'll mess with my memory. I mean, really? It, how peculiar. So what you have to do, it's just like every other thing. Everything you've been told is wrong. And you have to take life by the handlebars and figure out what's really going on, which doesn't mean that you're reckless. I mean, there are bad drugs, there are bad politics, there are bad relationships. I hope that answered your question. It was a two-part question, though. It still seems to me that these, that these entities are in many ways similar to the sort of elemental spirits, and whether you think of that is a possible explanation for it. Well, when you say they're like elemental spirits, is that because you spend a lot of time with elemental spirits? Well, I mean, it's not just fairy stories, but just the... It's true, they are. I mean, they are... They don't look like them, 
though. They don't look like anything. The, uh, there was a really bad movie. Those of you who don't have kids can tune out here, but since I have kids, I've seen a lot of bad movies because that's what they make for kids. And I think it was four or five years ago at Christmas time, there was this movie called Santa Claus that I tune out on. But there was one scene in the elves' workshop where they were making thousands of toys and there were all these conveyor belts going from level to level and these guys rushing around at full speed. It was the most DMT-like reconstruction uh, I've ever seen. So uh, it's funny, though, that the elf mythology doesn't carry the sense of strangeness that you get in the DMT flash, although I suspect that what that is is that we've been polluted by Disney, that Disney has given us this vision of fairies for two harmless, and you know, it's the Tinkerbell phenomenon. Because if you go back before, you know, is it Andrew Lang who wrote all those books, the Blue Fairy Book, the Brown Fairy Book, the White Fairy Book? Those are weird, those stories. I mean, fairies are weird. They steal babies. That's their main uh, way of relating to human beings is they steal human infants and, and leave behind wizened, deformed, sickly creatures who become very strange and peripheral kinds of human beings. And fairies, if you get trapped in fairyland, the only way out is through, and they're language-oriented. They will never do you damage if you, if you can convince them that you're a master of words. You know, it's poetry that they like. And... Uh, I, all over the world, there is this persistent motif of these small entities. Well, I'm not suggesting that they're really there, but I don't know what's going on. I mean, it's odd that they should persist and, and that they should be experientially available. I mean, you have to understand, I mean, a different person saying this to you, it would be a whole different thing. You know, if it was Madame So-and-so, Egyptians and uh, so forth and so on. I'm pushed to this stuff by, by experience because my inclination is toward reason, you know? It's just that everybody moves along safe channels. Everybody stays out of the fast lane. And if you move to the edges, and drugs are certainly an edge, and, uh, you know, a full exploration of one's sexuality is certainly an edge. And going off to weird corners of the world and staying long periods of time is certainly another edge. And if you do these kinds of full affirming world of white bread, European, bourgeois, work hard uh, uh, types, just looks as weird as uh, any cultural adaptation could possibly be. I mean, I have said many times, and you probably agree to some degree, that reality is created by language. But we don't realize how true this is, that reality really is created by language, and that we are all imprisoned in somebody else's language. 
this isn't how we want to talk. Most of the words, I'd say 90% of the words and constructions we use would be great-grandfather. You know, we are living inside a 90% 19th century worldview. And uh, culture cannot evolve any faster than its language evolves because what cannot be said cannot be done. What cannot be said cannot be put in place. So in a way, one uh, way of thinking about psychedelics is that they um, empower language. It's a way to force the evolution of language. The way you stretch the envelope of culture is by creating language. Everybody, I mean, this happens unconsciously in society, you know, Hasidic Jews or reggae people or whatever, the way they create their boundaries is through language, you know? I mean, the Catholic Church, this is how they do it. I mean, speaking Yiddish is a way to do it. Uh, it you, you create a new reality inside the old one, and you can do it by moving backward into a specialized language, or you can move forward into a new language. I mean, look at how the um, introduction of the computer has transformed our language in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, draw CPU, throughput, output, input, bug, glitch, all of this stuff. These are words that have been empowered by our involvement with a machine. Now, before that, the major influence on language in my lifetime uh, was the LSD episode of the 1960. And it always amuses me how much time and energy the establishment spends on heaping abuse on hippie talk. And, and it's even now, it's sold to you guys as West Coast talk. It's sold on the West Coast as LA talk. It's sold, here you are, you're close to it, but not of it. It's, it's like they used to say of the Watergate scandal, linked but not tainted. Uh, the, and what LSD did, I mean, I can remember uh, I can remember, if I can remember, uh, words like, uh, or a concept like ego trip. The first time I heard that, I didn't know what it meant. I couldn't even, I didn't have the concept. Well, then once somebody explains to you the concept, then you've got it. Vibes. That notion introduced a whole bunch of people to the idea of emotion. He said, you know, you walk into a room, it was a bad vibe, man. means that there's no rational deconstruction of what was going on, but you could just tell it was not a place you wanted to be. So it began to empower new realities that were able to emerge. And it was very important, I think, to the establishment to suppress that because new, reality, uh, new words are the... the uh, the beginnings of new realities. That, you know, it, the gay thing is an interesting example of that. I mean, it goes from, what was it called in the 19th century? The love that dare not speak its name. Interesting. See, it was there, but you dare not speak its name. Somehow to name it was to bring it too much into the forefront. 
and 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 people who were gay, nobody could anybody. I mean, it was worse than being a communist. Now, it's empowered. And all the various racial groups who have had to come up through the American meat grinder have had to create vocabularies of community that they were uh, proud of, you know, rather than accepting the vocabulary of the of the dominator culture. I mean, it's, you know, a good example is the NAACP. You know, the words colored people is embedded there, and yet these were the sincerest and most radical people in that movement. At a certain point, they the dominator designation for their subgroup and constantly oppressed minorities are trying to get the language right. And it's important for us to do this too. I mean, are we stoners? Are we heads? Are, are we shaman? Are, what are we exactly? Well, pouring, pouring psychedelic substances into that mix then opens the doorway for the logos to define you. And building community is part of this. It's, we are an interesting potential community because we tend, unfortunately, toward the lily-white, but not concerned. Uh, I, I don't see any class dominating. There are probably people in this room who could buy and sell all the rest of us without going past their small change. There are also probably people who scraped and saved for this weekend and could ill afford it. We don't seem to be embedded in that class structure so much. Uh, maybe we represent a level of education. Maybe we're some kind of generally definable group of people by level of education. But I don't see that either. What holds us together is what holds all subcultures together, which is an experience. In this case, not the ex something else, but the experience of being loaded. And, um, you know, it's a very powerful and immediate kind of experience and I'm sure some of us are more loaded than others and uh, in any subgroup you'll get that uh, kind of a spectrum yeah uh, well this is just I don't want to harp on this so with the DMT thing what do you go to it now for I mean have you gotten familiar with the terrain or is it every time and shocking and first time it's always pretty shocking. Uh, I'm, I've spent a lot of time on it. What happens for me is that these entities want me to do what they're doing. And what they're doing is using sound to make objects appear out of the air. They can sing objects into existence. And this, I, I think that they're language elves. They're not made of matter. Well, then what are they made of? It seems as though the place you go on DMT is made purely of language. It's as though there is a, a syntax, hard thing to picture, but they are more like sometimes they how can well hmm, they're like sentences rather than organisms 
the essence of their presentation is like that of a pun. And so what they want you to do is they want you to learn to make a better kind of language. They want you not more articulate, not more clearly defined, but they actually believe or suggest that there can be an, a dimensional breakthrough into a language that is seen with the eyes. This is, I think that the breakthrough that we're waiting for is not going to come out of a political movement or a redistribution of wealth or anything which could be called political. It's going to come out of a shift in the body. And... Uh, these things happen. I mean, it's very mysterious how it happens. Like, think about language, ordinary language. Here you have two people. One is mute, and the other has the ordinary powers of speech. They look exactly alike. You can't tell a mute person from anybody else. And generally complex behavior. Language is a behavior of some sort. And it's very hard to imagine that it slowly insinuated itself into our being. It looks to me more like it was a kind of quantum, uh, a quantum leap of some sort and probably appeared very suddenly. And uh, there have been other less dramatic but more recent things like this going on. For example... You know, you go to school and they teach you that in the um, in the 15th century, perspective was the thing for me to understand. I mean, perspective was discovered? How could it be discovered? I mean, you just walk, here it is, right? Uh, and, and say, no, before 1425, people didn't know that the part of the house farther from you was smaller than the part of the house. You can't understand. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, another example is uh, um, St. Augustine, who was this great father of the church and who was, by the way, African. And he, he was known as the most brilliant theologian of his age. And the way he would prove to people that he was an exceptional and holy man was they would open a book of theology in front of him and let him look at it for a few minutes. And then they would close the book and he would be able to tell them what was written there. As far as we can tell, St. Augustine was the only man in Europe who could read silently. Can you imagine this? It was a miracle. Say, we don't know how the bugger does it. You just show him the book, and then he can tell you what's written there. Meanwhile, everybody else has to say, and now we've completely assimilated this, although there are still a few among us who move their lips when they read. Vladimir Novikov used to cruelly sneer at these people. He said once in an interview, he said, I didn't write books for people who move their lips when they read. Um, so, and, and a final example, which will indicate that we've come to the end of the line, 
in terms of sudden behaviors emerging is, uh, according to my friend Bill Gibson in his book, The Difference Engine, uh, uh, oral sex was virtually unknown in England until the middle of the 19th century. And then it w- was brought in by French prostitutes, and it was just a mind-boggling concept <laughs> to these Victorians. They could not wrap their mind around it. Well, you know, from our vantage point, we probably assume people have been into this since the Stone Age. Maybe they have, but at least for several centuries in Victorian England, it absolutely died out as inconceivable. And, uh, you know, breakdancing is another one of these where a behavior suddenly emerges, completely coherent and formed, and then it recedes. So I, or, or, if it has cultural utility, it's stabilized, such as my previous example. Uh, (laughs) So what what these tykes seem to be trying to say is there is a way for you to use your voice in order to activate a language which is not culturally taught. It isn't that you learn it from your parents, but that it's in the bone a poetic language, a language scripted into your genes, and not only is it an Urschbrock, an original speech, the vehicle of primal poetry, it can be seen. And, you know, it's interesting how in our culture, when we talk about how somebody is really a gifted speaker, we always reach for visual metaphors. We say, I see, I see what you mean, you know? And in Spanish, they say, if they're talking to you and they want to know if you're following, they say, is it clear? Claro? Claro, it means, is it clear? It's a visual metaphor. Say, she paints a picture, uh, or he, his words have great clarity. What this means is that unconsciously, we trust the eyes and we don't trust the ears. And uh, telepathy, which most people, I think, think of as being able to hear somebody else think, is not that at all. What telepathy is, is when you see what other people mean. Because when you see what somebody means, it's like standing in their shoes. Point of view. That's a very visual If you can understand somebody else's point of view, you are that person in that moment for that purpose. And I think that it's amazing that the world has evolved as far and as fast as it has, the human world, glued together by nothing more than small mouth noises. I mean, that's what we're talking here, small mouth noises. As monkeys... We're set up for this. I mean, you can talk longer than just about any other activity that you can do without becoming exhausted. I mean, I'm the living proof of it. Uh, A very small amount of energy is required to keep the old tongue and lips going with the air moving out. I mean, imagine if we had to communicate as deaf people do 
with sign language all the time. This is exhausting. I mean, nobody communicates like that for four or five hours at a stretch, and yet Castro can give a four-hour speech at uh, the drop of a hat. So we're set up for this. The problem is um, it, it requires an, uh, a um, congruence of interior dictionaries because what happens is my words go across space as an acoustical signal. They enter your ear. You are very rapidly looking up each word as it comes in and comparing it to your definition. And as long as we don't look too closely at this, communication seems to be happening. The biggest showstopper there is in most situations is to say to somebody, now would you explain to me what I just said to you? Because then it turns out, you know, the definitions are wildly variant. I mean, it's not so wild if you're saying, you know, since you're up, would you get me a grant? Although even that's ambiguous. Maybe they say, why don't you just have one grant? You know? Uh, but if you get into deep stuff, if you're saying, you know, the ontological modalities of the post-Renaissance mind have issued into a situation of deconstructionist vitality such that all bets are off, <laughs> say, now would you explain to me what I just said? I can't even do it with myself. I mean, people say, would you repeat what you just said? No chance, you know. <laughs> so, so... Uh, and I, I've looked at this, uh, and there are models for this kind of verbal communication. Did we talk yesterday about the octopi and all that? No, thank God. Uh, well, see, whenever you think you're about to take a step that nobody has taken and go a place nobody's ever been, if you'll look back at Mother Nature you can usually find that you've been scooped. And a, a very interesting example of this vis-a-vis -vis language is um, what's going on with octopi. Octopi and squids, as you may or may not know, but most people know it because they absorb all these TV shows about nature. Somebody once said to me, I know you don't like television, but it's a wonderful way for my children to learn about nature. <laughs> anyway, what we've all learned from watching these wonderful shows about nature is that octopi can change colors. And most people think it's because they're into camouflage. You know, you move on to green seaweed, you turn green, brown rocks, you turn brown. It isn't that at all. It's something much uh, more profound. It's that um, all over the surface of octopi are these specialized cells called chromatophores, and they can change into many colors. And not only can the octopus change colors, but the ordinary rubbery, smooth surface of the octopus can be made like goosebumps, but more dramatically wrinkled, very suddenly. 
The other thing about an octopus is because they're soft-bodied when they're in water, which is their natural element, they are very, very adept at folding and unfolding various parts of their body so they can reveal a part of their body and then fold in and then show another part and they're like a silk scarf in water. Well, what's going on here is that octopi communicate with each other by the way they look. And at first, this doesn't seem so profound. It just seems interesting. But when you analyze what's happening, you realize that this is a profound evolution in the project of communication because there is no culturally sanctioned dictionary among octopi. And really what is happening is the octopus wears its mind on its surface. They have a vast repertoire of dots, uh, blushes, traveling patterns that move across their surface. And these behavioral displays indicate the internal state of the organism. It is literally, it wears its language on the surface of its skin. It is a syntactical creature. Its behavior is its syntax. And, um, you know, some of these octopi, the octopi as a whole, they're mollusks. They're not even vertebrates. I mean, these things split from the line of development that leads to us 700 million years ago. I mean, you want to talk about an alien form of life. An octopus is about as far away from the human experience as you can possibly get. They evolved in shallow coastal waters, but then because so many things were evolving in those shallow waters, some of them evolved into the benthic depths. And in those depths, there, are, there is no light. So in order to preserve their ability to communicate over long periods of time, they evolved phosphorescent chromatophores all over their body. And some octopi even have uh, eyelid-like membranes put on various places of their skin so that they can blink very rapidly and modulate the phosphorescent light. So you can imagine in the darkness of the benthic depths of the ocean, the communication between two octopi is just a dance of lights in utter darkness. I mean, these are its naked mind in the water. And uh, when they are in communication like that, they are for all practical purposes one organism. This is why octopi excrete ink into the water. It's so that they can have a private moment. <laughs> you know, essentially the octopus ink is the equivalent of correction fluid. You know, you, you just have to erase. You say, I didn't mean that at all. And then, you know, here's what I really meant. Well, I, uh, this is why I'm interested in virtual reality. Because it seems to me what we're trying to do is some kind of striptease of the mind. We want to get the mind naked. Because if it can be made naked, then 
we will understand each other. We are clothed in flesh and then clothing and then class difference, race difference, age difference, income difference. But if you could see the mind naked, the commonality of human beings would be reinforced and the presence of ego among us would be diminished. Also, there's no ambiguity in visible language. It's interesting that in the book of Revelations, there is this talk about how there is this sword which comes out of the mouth. It's describing a word which can be seen. And the whole history of the evolution of the Western mind is, in a sense, the birth of the Logos. The Logos is making its way towards self-expression. And it's doing this by claiming dimension after dimension of uh, uh, manifestation. And I think that electronic media and electronic culture and drugs and the mixing of all our world cultures together, what this is empowering is a visible logos, a logos that is beheld and therefore lacks ambiguity. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're just the mind. What do you all say that soul? Well, mind and soul in my estimation, probably not correctly, tend to migrate toward each other. You know, in the late medieval period, you get a lot of talk about is the spirit the same thing as the soul and are these things the same as the intellect? I mean, yes, we are soul, but I would say mind is the visible manifestation of soul. That would be a good Catholic definition because you see that keeps soul out of animals. If you say mind is the visible manifestation of soul, then you have restricted the existence of soul to the human species. Well, that seems something more Western scientific ideology, I think Sufi-Nash's contract Khan was saying cosmic language that the intuition is a higher form of intelligence than the mind. Well, the mind is not a form of intelligence. The mind is the theater in which intelligence is manifested. You don't want to confuse the garage with the car. There really is a balance of power where you give the heart Well, maybe I sort of hear you associating mind to brain because you're saying heart and mind. I mean, mind is heart. Everything goes on within the confines of mind. It's like the light that you switch on when you walk into a darkened room. And then everything else is the furniture within the room. Mind is simply the light which is shed over the landscape of appearances. You know, I mean, this is only my definition. I'm aware of the Neoplatonic emphasis on the mind. I think they called it the ends and so forth and so on. But in modern psychological terms, the mind is just the theater of cognition in some way. Mind, consciousness. No, consciousness is something which happens in the mind. I mean, there is an unconscious mind as well. 
mind is the inclusive category, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's very good. That, you know, the hardest thing to um, figure out is a mirror. Because what a mirror shows you is yourself. But a mirror is not yourself. A mirror is a piece of glass with silver vapor deposited on the back of it. But that's a very different thing from yourself. And in this psychic domain, in this psychedelic space, you are not simply perceiving that space. You are creating it with your expectations as well. So if you have strong expectations of a certain sort, that will be the character of the thing. I think we talked about this yesterday, about how here we have peasant A chopping wood in the woods, and suddenly a ripple of heat passes through the forest, and a hackle-raising sense of weirdness. And this guy throws down his axe and looks over his shoulder, and a light is descending from the sky. Now, what happens next, interestingly enough, depends on the year and the place. If the year is, um, let's say, 1,000, and the place is southern France, then the Virgin Mary will be descending from the sky. If the place is Kansas, and the date is 1958, then the space people are descending from the sky. You see, what happens is that um, when there is cognitive dissonance, good old psychological phrase, when there is cognitive dissonance, the mind rushes forward to provide explanation. I mean, it's amazing. You just walk with people and walk outside and there's a little light in the star, in the sky. It's no big deal, just a moving light. And everybody will say, oh, I wonder if it's a UFO. It means, you know, they've got something hiding in the back of their mind. And if anything gets slightly weird, they will rush this explanation forward. Uh, and for some people, you know, it's, it's Jesus. And for somebody else, it's Maitreya or somebody. So cultural expectations uh, are, are inextricably woven in to these strange encounter scenarios. There was an interesting UFO theory a few years ago that I thought was kind of cute. I didn't exactly believe it. But uh, these people, uh, Michael Persinger and uh, some Lafreniere, they wrote a really amusing book called Space-Time Transients and Unusual Events. 
And one of the things they came up with was uh, along earthquake faults, you get the grinding of enormous masses of rock together. And if these rock masses have a high uh, percentage of quartz in them, you can get what is called piezoelectric phenomena. Now, a piezoelectricity is simply a, a peculiar form of static electricity, but what it would do is it would create ball lightning in the sky which would follow these stress lines in the earth. And, you know, there is a connection not understood between earthquakes and, uh, and the appearance of UFOs. But one of the interesting things that Persinger discovered about piezoelectricity is that if you in the laboratory build piezoelectric generators that generate fields of enormous strength, then as a person is exposed to these things, they actually mess with your mind. They actually create people become more and more confused and uneasy and ultimately panic stricken in the presence of these piezoelectric fields. Well, once you pass the panic moment, then your mind is going to start telling you what's happening. It's going to say, you know, uh, you're having an encounter, something weird is going on. And then out of the unconscious comes the projection, the flying saucer the Virgin Mary, the elf invasion, the manifestation of Maitreya, whatever it is. So it's that mind goes to meet the unknown, but not without a hell of a lot of baggage of its own, which it immediately tries to unpack and put into the drawers of the other as soon as it arrives. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to test your theory. Right? Oh, dear. No, sorry, the mind is not the intelligence uh, too fast and too brilliant for me too. <laughs> um, the mind is not intelligence. It's not the soul. It, it's sort of the theater in which all these other things take their place. Somebody behind. Yeah. Yeah. Who the guys you mentioned that you've seen shaded in the Amazon? shooting beams of red lights in magical battles. Could you describe a, a magical shamanic battle, how it would occur? And would that be a psychedelic battle where there would be energy currents shot back and forth? Well, all I have is the anecdote, which I'll tell you. When, when uh, uh, Kat and I were in the Amazon in 76 taking ayahuasca, we got in with this certain group of people in Peru that took it every week. And, you know, cultures have different ways of handling hassle. And in some cultures it's confrontational, in other cultures not. The way these Peruvian country folk operated was if somebody was screwing up, nobody would ever say so. They would just talk about these people behind their back until the morphogenetic field of gossip was so strong that you would basically awaken to the problem. So there was a complex social situation going on in this ayahuasca circle, which was there was a master shaman who we were apprenticed to, who was beloved by his neighborhood. 
but he had a, 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 a nephew, a sobrino, who was a jerk. I mean, this guy was, uh, as Don Fidel said, ambitious. He dealt a little weed, he did a little pimping, he was just sort of an edge runner type of guy. And every Saturday night, we would all get together and take ayahuasca, about 30 of us. Older shamans, our guy, people from the neighborhood, and this sobrino, Don Jose. So, uh, I don't know what the real history of it was, because I had just arrived on the scene. But these old guys would sing these ikaros, these magical songs on ayahuasca that appear as colored tapestries in front of your eyes. And you know, they were, they had soul, they were into it, they were, and this guy would sing against them. I mean, it's the rudest thing you can possibly imagine. I mean, imagine if, if, uh, you know, Lou Reed were trying to give a performance and the guy in the third row just launched into Old Man River <laughs> and kept at it, you know? I mean, in this town, I'm sure large guys would appear and say, Sir. <laughs> in Peru, it didn't work like that. They just kept singing. He kept singing. And it was clear that this is how it was going to be handled, that we had just divided into two separate entities here. Well, um, my uh, wife was sitting next to me, and he was sitting across the room from us, the Sabrino. And I had been watching him for a long time, and I was loaded to the gills. And I could see he would get up on his haunches, and he, he looked like a monkey. He, he, his face... It was uncanny. I mean, he looked like a monkey, and he also looked kind of like a jackal, a dog with long teeth. Kept going through these changes, and and Cat leaned over to me and said something like, "This guy is an asshole." And I, I just said, "You know, let it slide. What do we know? Think of it as anthropology." <laughs> but she she wasn't having it. So after a while, um, he kept doing this. And at one point, and everybody in the room, every person in the room was bummed out, and they were looking at their laps. All eye contact was broken. It's actually, when I was a kid, I invented a word. The word is fardow, and it means the embarrassment you feel when someone else fucks up, you know, and you happen to just be there, but somehow the aura of it is so strong. So the entire room is just awash in fardow. And the old guys are singing, and the guy is singing. So then at the end of a particularly intense clash of these two styles, uh, my wife just looked across the room at this guy and, like, put the whammy on him. And I saw these red arrows leave her eyes and like like dotted lines go across them and they moved fairly slowly you know more slowly than you could throw a ball or something well when this line of red arrows got to this guy he was knocked off his feet he, he fell backwards with his legs in the air and there was a big noise and all the singing stopped and everybody in the room 
looked up, and these three old shaman who were sitting behind Don Fidel, who I, to that point, had not heard speak any language but Quechua, one turned to the other and he says in Spanish, Oh, the gringa sends the zabudabara. <laughs> you know, yeah. You mean becoming a jaguar and all that? Yeah. What, what's happening there? Or are they the night for the night for the owls or that? It's it's everything happens. I mean, they used to when I first went to the Amazon. They used to say to us the the Indians and the folks who helped us haul our stuff around. They they would say uh, La Selva como un sueño. It's like a dream. The forest is like a dream. And I thought that that was a, a poetic metaphor of some sort, you know, like it's not. It's that um, you need to read various people who've written on the boundary between wilderness and settled space. When you go into the jungle, language becomes everything. And unbelievably bizarre things happen, and they really do happen. I've seen this in, in myself, because when I first went to the Amazon, I knew virtually no botany. I only knew drug botany, because I was so focused on that. We would, row down, we would go down these jungle rivers, and there would be hours that would pass where no... No words related to where I was would come to me. I called it the big green. That's what it was to me. It was the big green, and there was a lot of different kinds of green, and that was it. Well, then the next time I went to the Amazon, I was with professional field botanists. And we would go out into the jungle, and these guys were just like children. You know, and say, look at this. This is a palacorea. Look at these varola trees. Uh, look at this hyalcyanthus. Look at this. Look at this. And soon my mind was filled with language about the green. And the green all disappeared. And instead there were plants that I knew and that were familiar to me. And this coming to terms with a local language is very interesting. You see, we... You speak the language you speak, in most cases, because of where you were born. If you were born in Russia, you speak Russian, China, Chinese. And an interesting thing about these languages is that you really can, they say you can never go home again, but in this rap, you never can leave home. You know, you go to the Amazon. But if you're explaining it to yourself in the language of uh, the East Village, you never leave the East Village. You know, you have somehow carried an envelope of local association with you, and you can never break through it. And so, in a way, you never see the place where you are. It's very important to try and make some accommodation to the local language because in a way only the local language is appropriate to the place you know France is a good example it doesn't make any sense if you don't speak French 
Germany makes no sense if you don't speak German. Uh, somehow the local language is a part of the local reality. And, and we ignore all this and behave as if everything is very straightforward. The one thing you learn taking psychedelics is that nothing is straightforward. Anybody? Yeah. Uh huh. one transcendental object that exerts attraction wherever it can. You see, evolution, in what evolution seeks to do is to stop itself. Every organism wants to evolve into what's called a climax ecosystem. That's where everybody has their chair and nobody moves. So there are no empty chairs. You see, everyone has a place to sit, but there are no empty chairs. Where you get evolution is where you have a room half full of empty chairs. And then you have the choice of where to sit. Uh, most animal species and plant species are not evolving or are evolving very slowly uh, because what... Uh, Evolution tends to dead end itself. I mean, take cockroaches, for example. Uh, cockroaches achieved their present evolutionary status 200 million years ago. They haven't changed an iota. We can dig up fossils from the Pennsylvania coal beds that have cockroaches no different except slightly larger than the ones running around in your apartment. So this has been clearly a very successful strategy for cockroaches if the only thing that matters is uh, you know, the propagation of more cockroaches. Nevertheless, their cultural accomplishments have been dismal. <laughs> so, until recently, yes. <laughs> I, I had a friend once who, who seriously claimed that 60% of the structural integrity of New York City uh, was contributed by cockroaches between the walls, and that if all the cockroaches were to ever march out, the whole thing would just fall down. You see, uh, it's thought by the straightest people in the biz that before human beings, the major force creating evolutionary opportunity uh, were rivers. And this happens because the course of rivers will vary over time and that means that rivers expose and inundate a lot of land. 
So along rivers, you find what is called, um, well, I can't remember what it's called. I'll name it. It's called unclaimed territory, sandbars, and, and large areas where nothing grows. Well, into those kinds of areas, what are called volunteer species or invader species can make their way. And these invader species uh, evolve very rapidly. For instance, in a climax tropical rainforest, what you find are enormous trees and vines and then the epiphytes and stuff that grow on them. But these trees may flower once every 20 years or so. And when they do flower, they often produce a very limited amount of fruit. What you find along rivers and places like that are what we call weeds. And what a weed is, is a plant that is, number one, annual. It dies every year. And weeds produce enormous amounts of seeds. A weed strategy is a strategy for the rapid invasion and claiming of empty land. And before human beings... Uh, rivers were the major creators of empty land. Uh, Carl Sauer, who was a biologist and a geographer, he said, uh, man found the earth a climaxed rainforest and we will leave it a weedy lot. What that means is we create so much waste land that these annual heavy seeding uh, rapacious plants uh, are replacing the the products of climaxed evolution, which are enormous trees and vines and that sort of thing. Anybody else? This is your last crack. Uh, which book does he talk? Well, I don't know which particular book. It might be a dimension of Voyage to Magonia. Oh, Voyage to Magonia is a good one. Is it the new one? I haven't read the new one. I, I think Jacques Vallée, I have a, a, a lot of respect for most of his work. I thought that book, The Messengers of Deception, was so off the track that I actually went to a book signing of his and leafleted the crowd uh, with an attack on it. Shows you what a nut I am. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jacques Vallée had a very interesting approach to understanding flying saucers, and I still think this is the best method. He, 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 his argument went something like this. He said... It's, it's not productive to ask where the flying saucers come from or, or what they want. He said the way to understand flying saucers is to uh, analyze their effect. If you can analyze their effect, that's what they're doing. That's what they want to achieve. So what are flying saucers doing? Talk shows. <laughs> well, they do talk shows, but what is the effect of them doing all these talk shows? What they are doing is they are causing vast numbers of people to doubt science. The re if you analyze what the effect since 1948 of the flying saucers is, is they have caused millions of ordinary people 
to think scientists don't know what they're talking about. That's right, that it offers a new alternative. Well, now, uh, here's an interesting analogy, and it's not mine, it's Jacques Vallée's. But let's think, we've been talking so much today about the late Roman Empire. Here's another take on the late Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was this immensely successful civilization in that it was able to export its vision of an imperial center over vast parts of the world. The problem with the Roman Empire was that it was an ethical disaster. Uh, First of all, it ran entirely on the backs of slaves. So anybody who who starts talking to you about the grandeur that was Rome, you know, should be reminded the grandeur of Rome was it was a bargain basement on three floors masquerading as a military brothel. It was not a great civilization. And what happened to Rome? Well, they had all these people inside the empire, among them... Jews, and over there in Jerusalem, a long way from Rome, where communication was difficult, um, this story got loose among the Jews. And from the point of view of the Roman Imperium, the Jews were a barbarian people. I mean, they were Semites, and they had some strange religion, and so forth and so on. They were looked upon, in other words, as primitives. And so... And and if you were to have sat down to have dinner with a typical Roman bureaucrat of the Imperium, you would discover that the table talk would be all about democracy and atomism, Epicureanism, Stoicism, and skepticism. In other words, they were thoroughly modern people, and they thought they had very advanced bullshit detectors. And so then, you know, it, it comes to the attention of this Roman noble that the uh, house slaves, the kitchen boys, and the, and the gardeners are all whispering and all excited about some, some Galilean magician who's running around uh, uh, the eastern Mediterranean telling people that not only can he rise from the dead, but so can you. And a Roman uh, sophisticate looking at this would say, you know, these primitive, uneducated, colored people that we have to put up with, uh, you know, why don't these people uh, uh, step out of their own private Idaho and get with the program and study a little Greek philosophy? They're just superstitious. Well, hey... In a world where information moved no faster than a horse could gallop, within a century, these uneducated, superstitious people and their irrational religion of magical redemption were hammering at the gates of Rome. And a century after that, the emperor himself, a god, for political purposes, has to make Christianity the official religion of the empire. In other words, what happened was that uh, 
political and technological and architectural accomplishments got way, way out in front of ethics. And at that point, the unconscious said, I'm going to pull the rug out from under these Roman dominator types. I'm going to unleash a religious system in their very midst that will be an informational virus that they'll be dead before they ever know what hit them. And this is what Christianity is, you know. I mean, it was a religion of the displaced underclasses of the empire. And within 300 years, it took over and began its own pogroms and genocidal programs of extermination. The flying saucer is a similar thing. We have achieved great things in technology and in social organization and in scientific research, but like the late Roman Empire, ethics and morality have lagged far behind. And so now, uh, the same unconscious that sent us the mystery of the virgin birth and the resurrection which completely confounded Roman rationalism. I mean, what were they to make of that, a virgin birth and a resurrection from the dead? They send us the flying saucers. And the flying saucers are destroying the faith in the scientific control systems and managerial theories at the very center of our civilization just as surely as the Roman Imperium was broken by this superstitious religion. So what it is, is that there is a force in this world, call it the unconscious, call it the cosmic giggle, call it whatever you want, but when a society gets all twisted and out of balance, it can pull it down in a hurry. And I think the psychedelic thing in the 60s was viewed this way, it's that the dominator society is incredibly fragile. I mean, that's why whenever you see somebody who has to pile up guns and guns and guns, it means that they're not terribly confident of their ability to keep control of the scene. And we have so many kinds of guns pointed at us. Propaganda, social engineering, manipulation of the media. They do it all to us and they still can barely keep ahead of it. They hate the spread of unreason. They hate psychedelic drugs. Hell, they don't even like people to work up a sweat on the dance floor. Anything, anything which bespeaks uh, anything other than ladylike and gentlemanlike, parlor-oriented, English upper-class behavior completely drives them into a swivet. And, and yet, you know, they launch horror upon the world that makes anything the Roman Imperium undertook look like child's play. I mean, this stunt they pulled with Iraq, you know, where they could kill, who knows, 100,000, 200,000. They don't even count the dead when they get pissed off. So um, that's why I think this archaic revival is in full throttle right now. I think the dominator model is doomed. And all the things that are coming forward, you know, the assertiveness of racial minorities, the assertiveness of sexual and intellectual minorities, people are just saying, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. 
and don't tell us what to believe and don't tell us what drugs to take and don't tell us what's politically correct because your record is a nightmare. And this general discontent spreading through society is, I think, keeping a lot of these dominator types up late at night trying to figure what's going on. I mean, can you imagine being in charge of the planet as though, you know, suppose you were the CEO of General Motors or something like that. I mean, every piece of data that crosses your desk says, you know, you're in trouble, big trouble. Somebody had a question. Yeah. No, I'm saying they're coming from another dimension of some sort that actually has a plan for the human race that is larger than the, the plan of the people who seek to run this society. Their plan, it's a brilliant plan, their plan is let's keep everything as much the same as possible. I mean, since World War II, they have been at war with the future. They do not want to let the future happen. And of course, the future is building up like a log jam in a river. And what it means is when the future finally tears loose and overwhelms these structures that they have built, it's going to be more dramatic, more sudden, more violent than they could ever have dreamed of or imagined. You'd, the establishment, yeah. Who, who are they? Who? No, they're forcing the evolution of language. The real cataclysmic future does not lie in the propagation of the errors of industrial materialism. The real transformation of the future is built into the rocks, the ocean, the animals. It's, uh, it, it's not coming from human beings. The people who think they're running the world are dreaming. I, I have, I'm completely convinced that no one is in control and that this is very good news. You know, nobody is in control. Not the Communist Party, the Vatican, the World Bank. Nobody is in control. There may be groups who dream of controlling, but their frustration level must be approaching infinity at this point. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. No, no, this was a military event. Alaric the Visigoth and his folks were moving south through the Peloponnesus. And uh, they were burning and destroying everything in their path. I mean, when we say that they burned Eleusis, it, it was in the act of burning Greece that they burned Eleusis. It was a case of military conquest. See, it wasn't... People think that these, these barbarians who invaded the Roman Empire were not Christian, 
most of them were. They had converted to Christianity long before they breached the frontiers of the empire. So Albert was not necessarily just a lunar who was yeah, he, he was just prosecuting a military campaign in the classical manner. So he killed all the priests? Yes, he killed the priests, he tore down the walls, he leveled it, in other words. That's right, scorched earth. True, yeah. A moment ago you said about the appearance of these UFOs and people's interpretation and reaction to them. Um, it's like some, some uh, force outside of humanity is trying to guide humanity. But now how does that fit in with what you were describing earlier about this hermetic tradition and belief in which humanity is the brother of God and attempting it through, through its own inner forces a completion of its no well, this uh, is a good this is a good question the way to draw the way to steer the hermetic question toward the UFO question uh, is to look at and I did want to look at this in the course of the day this concept of the philosopher's stone you see alchemy arises out of hermeticism. Essentially, hermeticism is the philosophy that stands behind alchemy, which is the workbench activity of this magical system. The philosopher's stone is this, it's a concept of, of a universal medicine that cures all diseases, that confers immortality, that brings happiness and understanding. Uh, but it's more than that. It's everything you want it to be. And uh, the flying saucer is this same idea. The flying saucer, you, if, any, if you're really interested in this, the best book ever written on flying saucers, or one of the best, was written just a couple of years after the first flying saucers were seen. It's by Carl Jung, and it's called Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky. And he talks there about how the human mind uh, has an appetite for what are called totality symbols. The human mind is always trying to complete itself, fix itself in some way, and mandalas and certain kinds of symbols have the quality of indicating that this completion is underway. The, in the 15th and 16th century, before the rise of modern science, people didn't know what matter really was. They didn't really know what was possible with matter. So they would you know, get um, glass flasks and combine horse manure and blood and all these things, and they would cook it for weeks and weeks, and they would observe color changes, and they did not have the kind of very fixed notion 
of the separation between mind and matter that we have because we have been trained to see mind and matter as tremendously separate categories. So these alchemists, working often day or night, day and night, in remote areas, on you know bad food and ergot-infested bread and what have you. Anyway, eventually they began to enter into a kind of waking hallucination with their alchemical activity. And so what you have in these glass retorts, presumably, are swirling chemical mixes. But the alchemist looking at these things didn't clearly distinguish between what is going on in the alembic, the alchemical vessel, and what was going on in their own imagination. The two categories weren't separate. So Jung noticed that these descriptions of chemical procedures that alchemy are not to be taken seriously as real recipes. They are uh, descriptions of psychic processes leading toward individuation. Well, in a sense, um, the flying saucer is nothing more than a modern rebirth of the philosopher's stone. I mean, the flying saucer is the universal panacea at the end of time. It's the thing which cannot exist, but which does exist, and which, if we could obtain it, everything would be different. You see, we've swapped out elementals for aliens, uh, and we've swapped out the philosopher's stone for the flying saucer. Nevertheless, if we were to attain the flying saucer, it would be the equivalent of the 16th century people obtaining um, the, the philosopher's stone. It, we are so bound in to the concept of the fixity of matter and its separateness from us as a mental category that we really rarely exercise our imagination in the way that... Um, that these early people uh, did. For us, everything stands still. I mean, it's a mental exercise you should do for yourself sometime is uh, imagine that you had uh, a material that could do anything. This is what the Philosopher's Stone is. It's a material object and it can do anything. Well, what do I mean by anything? Well, if you needed to go somewhere, you could take this material and stretch it out and then sit on it and it would fly. If you were hungry, you could eat it. If you needed to take a shower, you could stretch it a certain way and hold it above your head and water would pour out of it. If you needed a piece of information, you could just address it and ask like a visual telephone. See, we, we have created the Philosopher's Stone in the diffuse form of technology. We can do everything I just described, fly, talk to people at great distances, uh, eat synthetic food, and so on. But we have solved each problem separately. Now, in a way, the computer is an interesting leap toward the Philosopher's Stone because if you analyze what a computer is, is 
it's a machine which can do anything. You have to tell it what you want it to be. If you want it to balance your checking account, it can do that. If you want it to predict the weather, it can do that. If you want to play a game with it, it can do that. It's mind-boggling to realize that anything you can conceive of, the computer can simulate. The computer is the first in a long line, extending into the future from this point in time, of, of omnipurpose machines. We're going to move into a world where you don't have a telephone to call your friend, a fork to spear your meat, and a comb to tease your locks. You have one thing, and this one thing does whatever you need to have done. Technology is beginning to compress, and it will, of course, be a kind of computer, but it will be uh, voice programmable to do anything. Well, this is a very hermetic ideal, and uh, we are migrating toward this kind of a, a fusion of possibilities. This is the secret of how to dematerialize culture. Make machines which can do more than one thing. Make machines which can do thousands of things, but always return to being a, you know, a little ball or a little box or something. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Okay, I'll bet that when Terence was just now comparing a computer to the Philosopher's Stone, that uh, you thought of the iPhone too. Uh, I guess that once you can take a shower under it and then fly it somewhere and after that eat a bit of it, uh, that uh, then Steve Jobs and those uh, great Apple wizards will have accomplished what alchemists have been attempting throughout history. Of course, uh, my guess is that if those ancient alchemists arrived on the scene today and saw the current version of the iPhone, they'd probably think it was better than any stone they'd been thinking of. Uh, I don't know why I'm even talking about an iPhone. I don't, I don't even have a cell phone, let alone an iPhone. But it uh, seems like all my coolest friends seem to have one, so uh, I'm sure the alchemists would like it too. Also, uh, I was interested in hearing Terrence talk about uh, how the establishment did its uh, best to squash out any new words that the hippies came up with, uh, and uh, they did that as a way to keep their culture from evolving. Uh, and that reminded me of a conversation I had about uh, five years ago when I was just about uh, ready to launch this podcast. Uh, I was talking with a gay friend of mine, and I mentioned that I was thinking of uh, uh, maybe avoiding the word psychedelic and call it the entheogen lounge or something like that because uh, the word psychedelic was so loaded with negative connotations by uh, the mainstream. And uh, his reply was that uh, whatever word I decided to use would uh, also be taken away from me unless uh, we uh, claim that for ourselves. And uh, his example was the way the gay community took the word queer back and uh, then used it with pride. And uh, so I stuck with psychedelic, and uh, now that it is once again regaining respectability, uh, I'm very thankful for that advice. Uh, just now hearing what Terrence had to say about it makes me uh, understand what really good advice that truly was. Okay, uh, now I've got to ask, uh, what did you think about Terrence's very detailed description of a machine elf being more like a sentence or a pun than something material? 
Now, if you can make any sense at all out of that, I'd sure like to hear about it. <laughs> I've been over his uh, machine alpha app uh, quite a few times just before going into DMT space, and uh, my experiences, uh, even if I could describe them, were nothing like what Terrence talks about. And by the way, uh, and I think I mentioned this before, I, I actually did have one experience where I encountered real uh, knobby-nosed, bumpy-headed uh, little Disney-like elves. Uh, there were four of the little buggers, and uh, we actually conversed for a while and had a laugh. <laughs> but uh, that's another story for another day. My only point being that uh, we may not want to take Terrence's descriptions too literally. Uh, or uh, you may wind up kind of disappointed with an experience that uh, otherwise you would have thought was awesome. Now, uh, rather than chatter on here anymore, I'm going to get back to reviewing the last hour of this workshop and uh, try to get it online for you in the next couple of days. Uh, it looks like there's about an hour left that we haven't heard yet, and uh, that'll give me a little chance at the end to uh, pass along some of my observations about the Psychedelic Science Conference that was uh, held a week or so ago. But uh, for now, I'll just uh, close today's podcast by uh, once again reminding you that this and uh, most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And uh, if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, uh, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can uh, download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Be well, my friends.